0: This is an ABC podcast. (laughs)
1: Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. What are you up to this long weekend? A bit of foraging, maybe? You going hunting for some mushies for your risotto, obviously? Because if you make a mistake, you know it can be deadly. It's not mucking around here. If you eat the wrong thing, that can be it. So there is a big warning out there for anyone thinking of doing this. We've got an expert coming up, someone who forages uh, all the time and teaches other people how to do it. Also, the reaction to that Sydney Easter show hip-hop band, like that's been in the headlines all week and it's pretty wild. People have a lot of thoughts on it. A world-famous hip-hop professor is one of them. You're going to be finding out what he has to say. First, though.
2: Hack. Cutting or grinding these materials releases silica dust. It's so small, you might not even know you're breathing it in. On
1: Triple J. Have you heard of silicosis? Trades, especially stonemasons, you know what I'm talking about. It's a lung disease that's been around actually since ancient times. There are records of the builders who made the pyramids in ancient Egypt having this. And you get it from breathing in tiny particles of silica, which is found in a lot of things, including engineered stone, which a lot of kitchen and bathroom benchtops are made of. It's not just silicosis, though. As you're about to hear, there are other serious silica-related conditions that are putting young workers at risk. And now there's talk of banning engineered stone in Australia. Hey, are you a stonemason? What do you think of all of this? How worried are you about the risk to your health? I'm interested to know. You can message in 0439757555. Kimberly Price has been catching up with Hark to hear his story and his warning to other young tradies.
3: Be aware of it, be cautious of it, because it's really, really dangerous uh, substance.
0: Hark Kim is 27, and in his early 20s, Hark was working in demolition.
3: During demolitions, nobody told you to wear a mask. They just said, oh, okay, go to that room and start removing it and... That's what we did. We we follow the you know the order.
0: But Hark was getting sick. He was short of breath, had high temperatures. He was losing weight, and his skin was changing.
3: I went to a doctor, and they said you know it's just a flu or something like that. And then I'm like, yeah, okay, just keep keep going, you know, keep working until you realise it, it's getting worse and worse.
0: Hark had to stop work, and then scans revealed what was wrong with him. He was diagnosed with sclerodoma, an autoimmune condition affecting the skin, tissues and organs like the lungs. You get sclerodoma from breathing in tiny dust particles that get stuck in your lungs. In Hark's case, he breathed in silica. Did you know about the dangers involved with working with silica?
3: No, not not at all. I I didn't know that I was exposed to silica because I'm working under asbestos removeless until I was diagnosed.
0: Hark took legal action and got compensation from his former employer for not providing safe working conditions and exposing him to dust containing silica. Silica is found in things like sand, stone, concrete and mortar. It is used to make products like engineered stone, which is what makes a lot of kitchen and bathroom benchtops, bricks, tiles and some plastics. When workers cut, crush, drill, polish, saw or grind products that contain silica, dust particles are created and can get stuck deep in the lungs. In extreme cases, inhaling silica can lead to silicosis.
3: The best description is it's concreting the inside of your lungs, which means it's very difficult to exchange gas with your heart and with other parts of your body.
0: That's Mark Brook, CEO of the Lung Foundation Australia.
3: Silicosis has been around for hundreds of years. First cases were reported by the Egyptians when they were making the pyramids.
0: He says as products and techniques have evolved, we're now seeing accelerated cases.
3: With these new products and new construction methods and grinding and shaping, what we're seeing is accelerated accelerated psychosis which basically means that you've been exposed to that substance for a quite short period of time and then you're left with a debilitating
2: and tragically terminal condition.
0: You might have heard a few stories about silicosis in the last few months.
2: Brisbane's biggest infrastructure project's been hit with claims of unsafe conditions amid fears workers are at risk of developing the deadly disease. Silicosis. It's
4: caused by inhaling very fine particles of silica dust. So these are particles that are one hundredth the size of a grain of sand. We continue on this path of importing this very deadly product. We will see thousands. In fact we've got reports now indicating as many as a hundred thousand workers across all sectors will be diagnosed with silicosis with lung cancer you've got a good chance of recovery with silicosis it's there and it's it's not going away
0: So, the federal government has asked the policy body, Safe Work Australia, to explore a ban on engineered stone. Anita Arian from Morris Blackburn represented Hark in his case against his former employer. She says Hark's story is important because it shows it's not just people who handle engineered stone who are getting silica-related illnesses. We are seeing people in other industries such as demolition, people who work in quarries, miners and tunnelers who are getting diagnosed with these conditions. Huck's former workplace had strict safety measures for their workers when demolishing asbestos, but those same measures weren't put into place with silica. And ultimately that left Huck unfortunately fighting for his life on account of his diagnosis with scleroderma. Hark needed a lung transplant, and in October, he got the call that a lung was available, but it clashed with his wedding day. So Hark and his fiancée, Serenin brought forward their wedding and married at 11pm the night before.
3: After lung transplant, I felt a lot better, Yeah, more healthier, you can do more stuff than usual. Um, exercise, um, but a lot of appointments to attend to every day.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And how did that mm. lung transplant come about, that's mm. quite a miracle to be able to get one of those.
3: We were very, very lucky um, to get one um, fast and also um, on the lung transplant day it was our wedding day as well. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, it's a miracle
1: here. Yeah.
0: Hark won't be able to return to work, but he is hoping to be well enough for travelling and to start a family soon. And he will continue to advocate for more awareness around silica, especially for young tradies.
3: And I keep reminding my friends every day who who's still working, you know, to, to be careful, work with it, wear a mask, um, protect yourself.
1: Hack on Triple J. Kimberly Price with Hark's story, and yeah, we're wishing Hark all the best and huge congratulations on the wedding. Good to hear that. We've got messages coming through from people in so many different industries who are saying we're affected as well. Someone says, my silica awareness course at that a couple of days ago, the person running the class started off by saying, I know everyone in this room probably has got silica in their lungs already. It's pretty scary. Harry in Canberra says, I'm a plumber. Silica is the new asbestos. It's just as terrible for you as asbestos, with the long-term effects being really similar. And... Someone else says, yeah, it's not just stone working guys. Most underground mines now need to wear masks because of silica. Look, I want to get into this more. And with us now is Zach Smith from the CFMEU, which is the union representing construction workers. Hey, Zach, thanks for coming on, Hack. Good afternoon, Dave. The government's asking Safe Work Australia to look into whether there should be a national ban on engineered stone. But the government said even if that does happen, the ban, it's going to be more than a year away. Are they moving too slowly?
2: Uh, They are moving too slowly. Look, it's good that they've got Safe Work Australia looking into this issue, but absolutely engineered stone should be banned. This is the asbestos of the 2020s, and construction workers and people that are using this product are dying now. Our union has said if the ban isn't implemented from 1 July next year, so 1 July 2024, our direction to our members will be, and we'll be advising our members not to work with this product, and we'll be implementing our own bans on site because... We won't want to wait any longer uh, when it comes to such a critical issue like this.
1: Zach, there are some stonemasons out there that say a ban is not necessary because there are ways of, you know, dealing with the stone to reduce the risk significantly, precautions that can be
2: taken. Uh, What do you say to that? Well, look, it's just not true. An, An industry may say that, but let's have a look at the facts. We're seeing in stone factories that have relatively better safety standards, cases of silicosis still emerging. In New South Wales, a study there showed that one in four workers, so 25% workers that use this product are being screened for silicosis or other deadly lung diseases. And I think there's a really good point just to be made here that when we talk about contracting silicosis, that is a death sentence. All but the rarest of cases, is there any treatment available for people that contract silicosis? And in a lot of cases, it's a very quick death. Here in, you know, here in New South Wales, one in four workers is being screened. So when you talk about that sort of percentage, 25%, it's endemic. It says whatever control measures industry has used in the past, whether it be PPE or extraction, just aren't working. And at the end of the day, why would we take the risk anyway? This is a product that's a cosmetic product, it's an aesthetic product. It's not necessary, it's not absolutely integral to the building process. We can still have great looking houses. We can still have apartment blocks. We can still have commercial offices without the use of engineered stone. So why take the risk anyway?
1: What about young workers, specifically young tradies? Are you worried about um, how they're dealing with this? Do you think there is a lot of knowledge in the industry about how to best deal with these products? Yeah, look, absolutely. That's the case.
2: We are seeing workers in their 20s and 30s presenting with silicosis. And... Unlike asbestosis and mesothelioma, which is caused, um, as your listeners would be most likely aware, due to exposure to asbestos, which has a latency period of 20 to 30 years in a lot of cases, the latency period is a matter of years. And so I've seen workers quite young being given this debilitating death sentence. Uh, And I think there's a lot more work on awareness and training that needs to be done. I still think a lot of workers, young and old, aren't fully informed on the risks of silicosis in engineered stone. It has got better. I'd say it was a lot worse five years ago, but it's still not where it needs to be. And have a look at the face of our campaigner, a young stonemason, Cole Goodwin. He got this diagnosis at 32. He's now 37, and on the best estimations, he's got a year or two left to live. But, you know, courageously, Kyle has dedicated his life now to to raising awareness about this cause and you know, really shining a light on what is, you know, a deadly, deadly product that's killing workers. But he was quite young and struck down in the prime of his life.
1: All right. Zach Smith from the CFMEU, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks. There's a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says silica dust is also a hazard in the rail construction industry too because it's present in ballast, you know, the rocks under the tracks. Linda in Newcastle says, I work in a uh, laboratory in a quarry and it's got one of the highest levels of silica ever seen in a lab. It's So scary. And somebody else says, if the data's available now, why wait until 2024 for a ban?
4: Rap music will be banned at this year's Royal Easter show in Sydney to deter violence after a teenager was fatally stabbed
0: at last year's show. On Triple J.
1: Yeah, you might have seen the news earlier this week from police in New South Wales, the organisers of one of Sydney's biggest events, the Royal Easter show, they were talking as well that rap music was being banned at the Easter show. In response to something that happened at last year's show, a 17-year-old was killed in a stabbing after a fight broke out. Horrible news last year. Police and the organisers of the show said this week rapper-type music was being banned because they have evidence that bikie gangs are using it to recruit young people. They're saying it's a scientific fact. The type of music that's played predicts somebody's behaviour. Not everyone's agreeing with this. Some are calling it out. They say it's racism. They say it shows a complete lack of understanding, not only of hip-hop, but young people in general. The Easter show organisers are now kind of watering it down a bit, saying it's not a ban, just a crackdown on music with aggressive tones. What do you think of this? Let me know, oh four three nine seven five seven triple five. especially if you're a fan of hip hop. I want to get into it a bit more. And so let's talk to a hip hop expert. And A.D. Carson is one of those. He's a professor of hip hop at the University of Virginia in the U.S. And he's with us now. A.D., thanks for coming on Hack.
5: Peace, peace. Thank you so much for having me. So you're a professor of hip hop. How does that work? Like, how did you get into that? I did a, a PhD in Rhetorics, Communication and Information Design At Clemson University, I wrote a rap album as my dissertation. And at the same time, the University of Virginia was looking for someone to, you know, to be a professor in their uh, music department to think about the, you know, ideas around hip hop in the the global South. That's huge. I mean, and I listened to a
1: bit of your dissertation. It's So interesting and an amazing way to communicate, right? Which obviously young people all around the world know, hip hop being the number one growing genre in music. You're doing the opposite of what police here in Australia are calling for. You're trying to get more people to express themselves, communicate using hip hop, right?
5: Correct. Yeah. I mean, I think that the ways that we learn in the world and also the common texts that we have in the world, uh, very often are things that aren't happening inside of school. So to learn how to rap, to learn how to interpret the messages in the music, there's a way that you're almost engaging in an in an alternate curriculum anyhow, except that you're doing it because you want to do it. So if you, if you want to decode lyrics or you want to learn how to construct couplets or quatrains, whatever it may be you're learning how to do that outside of school. And then whenever you go into school and somebody tells you that you need to learn about sonnets or you need to learn about literature, you need to learn about imagery, you probably have an advantage over your classmates who haven't been engaging in that alternate curriculum.
1: So, Ada, you've seen the news from Australia. I sent you some articles. Police here calling for a hip-hop ban at this event, saying it's dangerous, it's leading young people into a life of crime. What do you think when you hear that?
5: Let's also just be like very real that that's like pretend science that they're talking about. And I mean, and I'll say I'll say it this way, that like also every person who's ever committed a crime, like to my knowledge, has also breathed oxygen, which would lead me to believe scientifically that oxygen causes people to commit crime. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
5: Because that that seems like the kind of thing that they're doing, like they're, they're trying to make this 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 correlation where. It's not its not really real, but it's tenuous enough to not really seem as racist as it really is, but it really is. And I've been writing about this since before my dissertation, but like I'm thinking specifically in, in 1986, the Run DMC tour where everywhere Run DMC went for the stadium tour, folks who wrote about the tour associated the violence that happened in town on the fact that there was a rap concert in town. And, you know, and, and and that has been a legacy that has followed hip hop here for a really long time. And this is not really the same way that all music is treated in society because, you know, folks might well know that like in 1969 at a free concert in Altamont, there was a, a killing where someone was stabbed on stage by members of the Hell's Angels. But that wasn't a rap concert. And then in 1979. Eleven people were killed at a who concert in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh but that's not rap music and I think that of course culturally folks have made these associations between music and violence it's blaming one of the symptoms and like acting as if one of the symptoms is the cause of the thing that's going on so if it's knife violence, if people are fighting one another, if there's violence that's going on and that and, and there's somehow some association that you're making through that music we're not going to pretend that the music is the knife we can't because that wouldn't make much sense but the music might be able to tell us something about the conditions that bring people to uh being in the circumstance where we might find them at a um at an event outdoors or indoors or wherever they might be you know and engaging in in these violent acts but that's not something like that, that's using the music as a scapegoat. So you don't have to really get deeper into what's going on.
1: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with A.D. Carson, a professor of hip hop at the University of Virginia in the U.S. A.D., um, you know, people and police in Australia, around the world say they're particularly worried about drill and the impact that has on young people. Has there been a lot of research into that specific type of hip hop?
5: I mean, the, the the smart research, I think, gets to the conditions that create drill and then treats drill as one of the ways that we might be able to explore those conditions rather than blaming those conditions on drill. If I, from, you know, I, I'm from Illinois, and if I write about the despair, the destruction, the death that happens in Illinois... I'm describing something that already happened or that is happening. And if you turn around and you take my music as evidence that uh, something that is making that mayhem happen, then I think that you've completely missed the uh, the opportunity to engage with what is happening in that place. I think that that's something that gets uh, misused. In public discourse very often, but again, I believe that that's because people don't want to understand what they really want to do is have a, a scapegoat and rap for, you know, going on 50 years has been a perfect scapegoat for Folks to be able to demonize the music and the people who make the music and the people who listen to the music.
1: Ad, I want to get into some of your work because I think it's so interesting and ask you, like, you know, you've been doing this for a few years now in terms of bringing hip hop into an academic setting. What have you seen in terms of young people and their ability to express themselves in new ways, or maybe unlocking that academic life for people who didn't think it was for them initially?
5: Yeah, well. I mean, again, I think that one of the things that we have to that that we probably should take heed to, especially coming up on fifty years of hip hop, is that like for folks like me and my siblings and all kinds of other folks in places like Decatur, illinois, hip hop was it was always academic. it has always been academic. it's always been a way that we might be able to engage in rigorous debate discussion, uh critical inquiry and for universities, you know in this in this shorter history to come along on that journey, it's good, but that means that we also need to think a little bit uh, more expansively about what it means to have access to an academic career. A lot of people who have been barred from participation in academia as a career or as you know the next step in their in their um, in their education. Like, how do, how do we bring those folks into the enterprise so that it's not the same kind of thing that happens to jazz music or the same kind of thing that happens to all of these other cultural forms that kind of get colonized by academia? And then they end up being entirely white enterprises where they began as something entirely different from that. And so the ways that they might rethink admissions requirements, rethink what it means to be uh, deeply engaged in an academic life so that someone like Nas, who, you know, made his first album after, you know, um, after, after dropping out of high school, probably would not have been allowed to attend Harvard University without a high school diploma but now there's a, a hip hop fellowship in Nas's name. So what do we do about the 16, the 17, the 18 year old Nas's of the world that exist right now in 2023? How do we make sure that places like Harvard will be welcoming to that young person that's on the verge of writing uh, the next Illmatic? And if we aren't willing to engage that seriously, then I don't think that we are very serious about what it is that we say that we're doing currently as we open up uh, the halls of academia to hip hop.
1: A.D. Carson, professor of hip hop at the University of Virginia. Thanks for joining us on Hack.
5: Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Hack on Triple Jack. Yeah, a lot of
1: messages coming through on that interview with AD Carson. Someone says, hey, look, the fact they called it rapper music indicates they got no idea. Someone else says correlation does not equal causation. That's like the first thing you learn when studying psychology. Stephen in Melbourne said that. And other people saying, look, you know, I've been a hip hop fan for years and years and years. I've not committed any crimes so far. So look, Lots and lots of comments on that one. Time to move on.
5: When I look at the risk versus reward, like the best case scenario is I get a free mushroom. The worst case is that I die.
1: On Triple J. Maybe you're into growing your own veggies. Are you? Have you ever gone out foraging though? At this time of year, mushrooms are out. Hey, it's the long weekend and some of you will be out there foraging for mushrooms. Be careful, though. Seriously, there are some real dangers that come with foraging. One Australian state has this week issued a public health alert warning people not to forage at all. Food safety experts are warning us to be really careful. Foraging can be tied to some cultures and a lot of people do get into it. So how can you stay safe? Well, our reporter Angel Parsons has been getting into it.
5: Come mushroom foraging with me. All
1: right, getting the 2023 foraging season underway with um, some salius mushrooms.
4: The first one I found today was a little one that looks like a type of fibre head, which are toxic, so I put it back where I found it. I spotted something up on this tree up here, so I've just pulled over and uh, we're going to take a quick look. So I don't know about you, but I've been noticing heaps of mushrooms popping up just in my backyard, where I am now, taking a look. Yeah, we've just had a couple of days of showers here in Mackay in North Queensland, and I feel like these guys pretty much just popped up overnight this week. So we've just got a patch of pretty, I don't know, basic-looking small white to yellow mushrooms. I have no idea what kind they are or if they're edible or toxic, but that's the kind of thing that food safety experts are really urging us to take seriously right now.
5: I don't think these are what we're looking for. But these are something that someone might almost mistake. They're all a bit brown. We want something that has a more white stem. Death or dinner? This is about as far on the dinner category as you can get. Porcini doesn't get any better than this. Death or dinner? It's definitely
6: death. Mm. Is a hebloma.
4: Between now and about June, the cooler and wetter weather that some parts of Australia experience are perfect conditions for mushrooms. And foraging is a common practice within some cultures or can be just a social activity for friends or to find food. And some people get really into it. So
0: I've just rigged myself a backpack for foraging and uh, it's turned out much better than I thought
4: but before you even think about doing it, there's some stuff you should know. Health authorities are warning people not to forage for wild mushrooms after experts found several kilograms of a deadly variety in the Adelaide Hills. The Food Safety Information Council of Australia says that foraging is becoming a popular activity, but gathering wild mushrooms can be life-threatening. For example, the death cat mushroom, which is enough to kill an adult, which are found in Tassie, Victoria, South Australia and the ACT. In 2012, two people died in Canberra after eating a meal containing the deadly mushroom at a New Year's Eve party. Here's what fungi expert Teresa Liebel told ABC Adelaide.
1: The fatality or mortality rate is somewhere around
4: 80 to 90 per cent and it only takes a piece the size of a 20 cent piece to kill you and cause serious damage to your kidney and liver. In South Australia, a public health warning has even been issued about the potential dangers of wild mushrooms after a dozen reported poisonings in the state in the year to date. Is Dr Kate Merton, a public health physician. There is a bit of a fad with foraging at the moment, but it's risky and it's really not worth the risk. So the expert advice coming out of SA is to stick to the supermarket shelves.
5: Hi, on Triple J,
1: Angel Parsons there, some important warnings ahead of the long weekend. But hey, there are people who really get into foraging. One of those is a guy called Diego Boneto, He's a forager, a wild food advocate, and he's with us now. G'day, Diego. Welcome to Hack. Hey, 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 hey. Hi, Dave.
6: Thank you for having me on.
1: So what are you doing this weekend? Are you going to be out there looking for some food, foraging? I am, I am, and I also teach foraging,
6: yes. This weekend I'm going to take a whole group of people to learn about mushroom, how to safely harvest edible mushrooms.
1: Okay, because like to be clear, there are real safety concerns as we've just heard. Um, You need to know what you're doing, right? Absolutely. It is best to know what you're
6: doing. That is true of so many other things. And uh, yes, learn from someone who can teach you. Find a mentor. This mushroom foraging in Australia has been happening for generations. The Italians, the Polish, the Czechs, um, communities have been harvesting pine mushrooms in Australia for 70, 80 years. And, and um, there is there is concerns of safety. You just need to
1: know what you're doing. Yeah. And it is an ancient skill for humans, right? Foraging. That's probably what you love most about it, right, Diego? Absolutely. Foraging is the oldest of skills. We learned. To to forage before we had
6: legs, I believe. If you didn't know where to find food, you wouldn't have evolved into what we are now. So foraging is the oldest of skills. We just forgot about it. We started to um, be scared of it. We stopped listening to the old people and we kind of lost the knowledge, lost the skills. And that's what's important, to bring back the skills and the knowledge.
1: And I guess there's a lot we can learn from First Nations Australians, right, about what's safe and what's not, because Australia is obviously a very different landscape to Europe or America, so stuff that's written about those countries or countries in those areas, very different to here. Absolutely. Mind the,
6: the mushroom that we eat and know and use here in Australia, the edible one, are the vast majority exotics um, that uh, related to an exotic knowledge imported in Australia. So uh, when it comes to mushrooms, we're really, really just engaging with um, you know, knowledge that comes from overseas related from, with mushrooms from
1: overseas.
6: So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what's the good about it. There's plenty of food out there. Just learn how to recognize it.
1: And just quickly, um, Diego, what kinds of things do you find? So there's mushrooms, but there's other stuff you're foraging for, right?
6: Absolutely. There's so much more things out there. This is the mushroom season. Obviously, everyone is keen to learn about mushrooms. But uh, there's also plants. And in that case, indigenous knowledge is priceless uh, because when it comes to bush food, that's where the knowledge resides.
1: Big thanks again to everyone who commented and messaged in this week. A lot of big stories. And today we had uh, so many big ones. The hip-hop band, a lot of people want to talk about that. That is all we've got time for on Hack for now, for this week. I'll catch you after the long weekend. We'll be back on Tuesday. Have a great time. Bye. Hack on Triple J.